Happy Sabbath. <clears throat> Friends have told me that if there was a party game and you drew a random topic and had to tell a personal story about it, that I would win every time. So I'm not sure if they mean that as a compliment, but <laughs> I'll take it. And in any case, I'm very honored to have been asked to join uh, this group of speakers this summer to share a piece of our lives with you. Today I'm going to share the story of how um, my family in San Diego intersected with the practices of redlining, freeway construction, and suburbanization that's built our, shaped our built environment in our cities for well over the last hundred years and influenced how we relate to each other in it. Since this is a short talk in church and not a master's thesis, I will try to keep it short. <laughs> um, and I will only be able to scratch the surface on some of these topics, um, but I do encourage each of you to draw your own parallels to your own experience. So I'm gonna start with my parents. I like to refer to them as the quintessential baby boomers. My mom was born in Hawaii in 1946. It was still a US territory and uh, World War II had just ended. My grandmother was 18, hooked up with a Navy sailor, had my mom. <laughs> they went on to have five children and they relocated to San Diego in 1951. They settled in a rental house on Market Street in San Diego in 1955, which is a neighborhood in Greater Logan Heights in Southeast San Diego. And this is the house she grew up in uh, that's her when she was a baby in Hawaii and the house she grew up in as it looks today. My father, Jack, was also born in 1946 in San Diego and he was the middle child of five siblings. His father had been a metal worker in the Navy and started a house moving business, Ace Moving Company, when he left the service in 1946. My grandmother, Anne, worked with him in the office and that building is still there on Pacific Highway and they settled in the same Sherman Heights area as my mom, just a few blocks away about 1955 as well. They probably crossed paths many times over the years, but they did not meet until high school. They both graduated, class of 1964. Dad went into the Air Force in 66, married right before they went, uh, he went to Vietnam. He returned home on Christmas Day, 1969, started his job at Pacific Bell the next month, and worked there his entire career until he retired. My sister came along a year later, and then they purchased their modest single-family home in the area of San Diego called Claremont, um, with the assistance of the GI Bill, and that is where I was born and raised, and my family still lives. So now I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Claremont, and this is Claremont in San Diego, not Claremont up here in San Gabriel Valley. It was developed in the 1950s and was San Diego's first post-World War II suburb. It was situated north of San Diego proper, and so it was designed with its own commercial centers. The streets curved with the topography as opposed to the grid pattern, and it was pretty revolutionary at the time. And it was significant because it established the first suburb in San Diego that was patterned over the rest of the country after World War II, and most of us probably live in today. Through middle and high school, most of the, and this is me when I was little, <laughs> through middle, junior high and uh, high school, um, most of the black and Hispanic kids were bused to our school from Southeast San Diego as part of the voluntary integration program. 
In eighth grade, I was president of the student government, and due to some after-school activity, one of the black students in my ASB group missed the bus, and he needed a ride home. So I accompanied my teacher, and we drove him home, and I had never been to that area before. Uh, it's an area in San Diego called Skyline, and it was predominantly black then, predominantly black now. And um, after we dropped him off, my teacher kind of went on a little conversation about how it was such a shame the neighborhood had declined, and once all the white people moved to Claremont and UC, University City, um, now all the houses had bars on the windows, and these kids were being bused to our schools, and I didn't realize it then in my eighth grade frame of reference, and I didn't have the words, but that was my first introduction to the concepts of redlining, white flight, and racial segregation in housing and schools. So I'm going to divert a little bit to my mom's side of the family. My maternal great-grandmother was Native Hawaiian, and so my grandmother was half Hawaiian and half white. So that's my maternal grandmother holding the baby, or great-grandmother, I should say, and my grandmother's the little girl in the corner. This became significant in high school because when I was a sophomore, she invited me to go with her to Hawaii for two weeks to study our genealogy. When I was there, I learned from my family that University of Hawaii offered a program to Native Hawaiians to pay in-state tuition, even though you were a non-resident. And there were many other scholarships that would be available to me as a Native Hawaiian. I decided to go there for college, and my grandmother sent me with a stack of birth certificates, death certificates, baptismal records, so that I could claim those benefits. My experience in Hawaii, even though I'm part Native Hawaiian, I don't look Native Hawaiian, and I'm from the mainland. So, um, it was the first time that I was a minority. And white people make up about 24% of the population there, and collectively, people with Asian ancestry are about 41% of the population. And there's no racial majority in Hawaii. And that has its own unique racial tensions that they're living through today, uh, but that's the subject of a different conversation. This was also the time that I noticed the discrepancy between the natural environment and the built environment. And you can see in that picture of me with the, the Honolulu skyline behind me, obscuring Diamond Head, it's really sad to see that it wasn't uh, done better. So that's when I decided I wanted to study city planning. There was no undergraduate program at UH, and so I took all my prerequisites to transfer to San Diego State University, and I got my urban studies degree there, um, and transferred back home as a junior. A lot had changed in San Diego while I was gone in just those two years. San Diego had hosted the Super Bowl and the World Series in 1998, so there were a lot of investments in infrastructure. Downtown was undergoing a transformation with the gas lamp district. The trolley was being extended to Mission Valley. And there was a new baseball stadium that was the talk of the town, which is now Petco Park. San Diego is still going through this as Chargers have left Qualcomm. So, um, lots going on there. Um, one of the projects that we studied in my urban studies program was the construction of the 15 freeway through a neighborhood called City Heights. The freeway had been in the plan since the 50s, but it had just never been constructed. And so this is how you can see it in the 80s. And then um, in the 90s, they started assembling the property and demolishing the homes that were there. 
the community had a vision of more connections across the freeway, and they envisioned a tunneled freeway with parks and open space across the top. Um, and the next slide shows the land being cleared in that same segment there, so that's in the 90s, and it sat that way for quite a while. And the project wasn't completely tunneled as it was envisioned, but it was below grade, and there was a park cap across the top called Toralta Park. And this was um, one of the first freeway cap projects in the country, so this is how it looks today. And I learned through this experience how freeways and other infrastructure projects built in the 40s through the 60s often plowed through established inner-city neighborhoods or separated a nicer neighborhood from a less nice neighborhood, which perpetuated its decline, all to facilitate construction of the suburbs that were generally only available to white people through the practice of restrictive covenants. There may have been a little to no compensation for the displaced, and the ones who were left bore the brunt of the negative impacts of the freeway in their backyard or their front yard. And I stated at the beginning of this, this isn't a master's thesis, so I promise the next few slides are the most academic I'm going to get. Um, I know it's summer, but it's a university church, so hopefully you'll give me a little grace on this. But these are the uh, texts of the Fair Housing Act as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1968, um, addressing housing discrimination. The Uniform Relocation Assistance Property Acquisition Act, addressing equitable treatment for people displaced by federally funded projects like our freeways. That was adopted in 1970. And then in 1970 also came the California Environmental Quality Act, which addresses impacts of the environment, public disclosure, and mitigating damages by projects. So I just want to demonstrate through showing you this text that um, these laws acknowledge that these were the common practices at the time. And CEQA, specifically, is the area of city planning that I work in now. You may have also noticed 2018 marks the 50th year since the passing of the Civil Rights Act, which sounds to me like a jubilee year that Steve described. Some things have changed, I would argue, for the better. <laughs> this is my family. <laughs> Next month, we'll celebrate 15 years of marriage. We've been together for 20. Thank you. <laughs> At the time that both of our sets of parents were married in 1965 and 66, it would have been illegal for us to marry each other in many states in this country. So there have been a whole body of laws passed in the, 19, in the last 50 years, like the ones I've described, that seek to level that playing field. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like we're experiencing that promised reset button and many are still suffering in the cycles and systems of poverty. And I'd like to share a few insights into the systems that our generation is still carrying the weight of. Post-depression uh, in 1933, FDR created the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Their purpose was to stabilize housing by restructuring mortgages. In order to categorize risk, they created color-coded maps of cities all over the country. You earned a green area if you were desirable, and you earned a red area if you were a higher risk. Neighborhoods earned a red color if minorities lived in it, whether or not it was middle class or um, single-family homes. This is the redlining map of San Diego from 1936, <clears throat> which is about the time my grandfather arrived. 
As you can see, Southeast San Diego is the area in red. And I've highlighted some examples of how these areas were described. Specifically to where my family lived, this area is one of the oldest parts of the city, being inhabited by various types of residents, running from Mexicans in some parts to there are more or less all white in other parts. There's an influx of small industrial plants and businesses, apartment houses and other multiple dwellings, also many cheap rooming houses. The area is definitely hazardous, and that's from a lending perspective. In the middle southern portion, a great many Mexicans with a definite trend of infiltration of this element. North portion, occupied by mixed races, colored Mexican, lower salaried white race, laborers, etc. Racial concentration of a colored fraternity. Homes show only slight degree of pride of ownership and on average are negligently maintained. To contrast, these are how some of the neighborhoods in La Jolla are described, which is to this day one of the wealthiest parts of the city. Residents are all white collar classes, professional men, retired people and businessmen, artists and writers with an income range of $2,000 to $20,000. And that's in 1936 dollars. People don't make $20,000 now. Lots carry deed restrictions as to races, buildings, architectural design, etc. It's contiguous to an 18-hole golf course. This is probably one of the most attractive and highest-rated districts for large homes and estates in the La Jolla area. Residents are 100% white. No influx whatever of any inharmonious influences. The area is easily accessible to playgrounds, beaches, tennis courts, golf course and club, and other recreational facilities. One notable exception you may see in that map is a squall, small square in the middle of La Jolla. It's geographically far from the... If you go back to the next slide, if we can get to the map again. Um, they describe it this way. There's two areas, actually. One is yellow, which is a little bit higher rated. It says that there's no racial concentration and it's conveniently located to schools. There's a slight infiltration of Mexicans, balance the population white. There is no threat of any excessive infiltration of Mexican element. And then you go to the red section of La Jolla. It's a little five-block square. It's described this way. This area is known as the servants' quarters of La Jolla, being populated with the serving class of whites, Negroes, and Mexicans. While populated with this lower social strata, the area is considered good security for conservative loans. And that's code for higher down payment, a shorter term, or a higher interest rate. And then it says that this particular area is set aside by common consent for the colored population. So now that I've read these documents to you from 1936, who here is absolutely shocked to see this kind of language in our federal government's loan program? Who here is not at all shocked to see this kind of language in our federal government's loan program? Yes, it's quite eye-opening. The next slide I want to show you is a copy of the Fair Lending Act from 1977. Uh, my mom was gracious to give me her box of documents from their house in 71, and this was inserted in one of their, um, their notices. And so you can see that the language of it is addressing everything that I just outlined to you that was 
the official policy of our country since 1936. This was passed in 1977. So despite many laws and court decisions in the intervening time, you can see that it was still a practice even through then. Um, and according to HUD, there's actually two to 4,000 race-based discrimination cases every year since 2000. So this isn't something in the past. So now that we've seen practices of redlining, let's look into uh, restrictive covenants. This is a, an advertisement for one of the earliest neighborhoods in San Diego called Bay Park Village. It advertises that it's safe with reasonable restrictions. And Claremont was one of the many suburbs in the United States built during this time that continued that practice into the 50s and 60s. And it limited the sale, rental, and resale of suburban single-family homes to only white people. The Federal Housing Authority implemented this practice as a condition for financing for subdivisions and also to individual homeowners. The Supreme Court ruled in 1948 that this was unenforceable in the Shelley versus Kramer case, but the FHA actually resisted this ruling and continued the practice for many more years. And then the next slide is an excerpt from the title insurance to my parents' house. So you can see that in 1971, it says that you have to follow all the, all the covenants. But then by 1983, it says that you um, ex accepting the covenants about race, religion, national origin. There's many examples of these restrictive covenants in property records. You just have to look for them. They're public records, and you can pick it up at your local county clerk recorder's office for just a few dollars. So now I'm going to talk about freeway construction. The national movement of suburbanization went hand in hand with the construction of the federal highway system. This is essentially the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So if you haven't seen that movie or if it's been a while, go back and watch it after you've heard what I've talked about today, and you'll pick up, you'll pick up on it. So since the 1940s, my grandfather owned residential property in the Midway area of San Diego, which was taken by eminent donee for the construction of the 8 freeway. And as part of that transaction, he got land on the 25th and G Streets in Logan Heights, which is where my family grew up. The land was in a block between Market Street on the south, and that was the border with the black and Hispanic community to the south that I had described earlier, and the more affluent, wider section to the north. It was a transitional area. It was actually coated yellow to the north, a little bit better than red. The construction of the 94 freeway demolished an entire city block between F and G streets, effectively creating a barrier between that more affluent area and Logan Heights. And I just drove back there the other day with my mom, and you can actually see that on this street, there are still the curb cuts and driveways of the houses that were demolished. They didn't even go back and improve the curb since the 1950s. So he owned a house-moving business, and he moved units um, from the footprint of where the freeway was going to go, and he took them to a couple of them to this new property that he got. So you can see this picture is of the building in its original location with the garage at the ground level. And then um, this is it when it was being moved. So they had just cut it off and 
um, put it on a truck trailer and, and moved it. They don't do that much anymore, but it happens sometimes. These photographs were commissioned by my grandfather by Norman Baynard, who was a well-known photographer whose body of work documented the African-American community in Logan Heights in that time. Baynard's family has since donated those negatives to the San Diego History Center photo archives, and several of these images are in those archives. And I just want to divert here a little bit to say that um, I had a conversation with Dr. Uh, Taylor this week, Pastor Taylor, who you may know. He actually married Daryl and I and has been my um, husband's family's pastor for many, many years. And we got to talking and realized that he was the pastor of the 31st Street Seventh-day Adventist Church in the 1960s, which I didn't know. And that's the neighborhood that my family grew up in. And come to find out, they knew a lot of the same people. And so I'm really looking forward to having that conversation with Dr. Taylor of the people that um, were in the place and the time um, because there's such a rich history and I can't wait to hear. So the next slide I'm gonna show you is just an aerial of that area of Logan Heights, which is in the um, triangle of freeways. It was, um, the five went through Little Italy, separated Logan Heights from the waterfront. Um, the bridge to Coronado was built through the Barrio Logan neighborhood, which was predominantly Hispanic. And the community had been told it would be a park, but by the time the area under the bridge was being graded in 1970, it was gonna be a California Highway Patrol station. The community famously staged an occupation of the site, and it is now a park, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. There was another neighborhood that had actually had land cleared, and the um, bridges were built, and they were able to stop the, uh, the destruction of their neighborhood, and it's now a park. And this is the map of San Diego showing the disadvantaged communities today. On the next slide. And you can see the red areas are the, uh, the areas that I've been talking about. So I want to briefly tell you about a project that I worked on while a planner at the Port of Los Angeles through 25 to 27. The port had been acquiring industrial property to expand a container terminal and reroute a road with heavy truck traffic, and they were going to build a sound wall next to homes. The low-income, um, predominantly Hispanic community organized to fight the project and eventually went out against the, the port interest, and they agreed to build the park on that land instead. And the park was actually a mitigation measure in the environmental impact report that was prepared for that project. I started working on the project in 2005, which is when the fun really began, because the political fight had been won, and we got to do the fun part of designing the park. So we did community workshops, reached out to the community, hired a landscape architect that's been, the project's won many awards. So this is uh, me here when the park had its grand opening. Um, Mayor Villaraigosa was a champion of the project at the time, and it's actually still going, ongoing. There's more expansion of it um, coming up in 2019. So I think you can see a theme here, infrastructure projects, community opposition, and park. This is the same theme of the I-15 free, freeway that I started my planning career with um, as a student at San Diego State. One of the top issues that we face in California is the cost of housing. And so the next slide I want to show you is just 
an illustration of a very complex issue. But I want to show you how a home in 1975 under Prop 13 um, would pay over 50 years $22,000 in property taxes. Over 50 years. If you were to adjust that price to current value, it would be $163,000. And it would take 12 years to pay the same amount of property tax that the original owner in 1975 took 50 years to pay. But we all know that you cannot buy a house for $163,000 in Southern California. More realistically, it'd be about $500,000. And so the $500,000 property owner would be paying the same 20, over $22,000 in less than five years, that it took somebody else 50 years to pay that same amount of money. So you can see the um, playing field that we're living in today in the cost of housing. And that's just one piece of it. So, I want to, uh, it's pretty clear who winners and losers are in this scenario. And I want to revisit here a part of what Steve talked about in the Jubilee Restoration, about cushioning the distress of the loser, therefore making winners for all of us in the long run. However, all too often in the actual experience, the winners come out to oppose projects um, to their neighborhood city councils and remove that opportunity for someone else to put a roof over their family's head. And the root of that opposition is usually an aversion to change, and you hear some of the same themes that we read about in those redlining documents. So, if you aren't thoroughly depressed yet, <laughs> I want to say that we should be encouraged that there are some signs of leveling the playing field. There's been a lot of recent legislation at both the state and federal levels and local agency policies, hopefully helping to start put a dent in the high cost of housing and mending the divides created by our transportation system. In 2015, the Obama administration passed the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Act. And as of the last time I checked, it's still in place. So hopefully it will still be there. I haven't checked Twitter today. Um, so in 2016, the city of Riverside ended homelessness for veterans and recently adopted the housing first model to address the challenges of housing our neighbors in our community without homes. The state adopted Senate Bill 1000, or Senate Bill 1000 in 2016, and that requires cities and counties to address environmental justice in their general plans starting in 2020. One of the top advocates for this actually is here in Riverside County. And at its essence, environmental justice is the recognition that negative impacts of these undesirable land uses have disproportionately affect communities of color and that we collectively have to start correcting for those impacts. One of the many pieces to that puzzle is the growing movement happening in neighborhoods across the nation that have been carved up by freeways, that they were built in the 50s and that is to cap them in order to weave these disconnected communities back together, which is like the City Heights project that I worked on when I started my planning career as a student. In 2015 and 2016, the City of San Diego, the local regional planning agency, and Caltrans kicked off a planning study for a freeway cap on the 94 freeway, right in the front yard of my family's 
historic neighborhood. And um, it's not funded yet, but hopefully it won't take another 50 years to build. And perhaps there is a Jubilee restoration on the horizon after all. So thank you so much for listening to my story. And my hope is that each of you have the opportunity to reflect on how your family exists within the landscape of the built environment and the history of how it came to be, and maybe look at it in a little bit of a different lens than you may have realized. And to see how you might be able to be a part of the Jubilee restoration in your own neighborhood. Thank you.